teach us as your children, humble us under your word. We love you. We thank you for all the gifts that you give us. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm wondering, do you guys, uh, you guys like going to dress up parties? Um, I quite like them, but I really don't like them when everyone gets into them. You know what I mean? It's kind of lame if you're the only one who's dressed up or the only one who hasn't dressed up. So I like them. I've turned up as parties, dressed up as a ninja turtle, as a piece of modern art, which was kind of weird. And I've dressed up as the comic character Thor. Uh, there it is there. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible costume. Isn't it? I mean, it's, it's awful. I didn't say it was good. Well, in 2005, Prince Harry of the British royal family turned up to a dress-up party wearing this. A World War II German desert uniform with a Nazi swastika on his arm. The very next day, uh, multiple papers around the world printed this photo, causing quite a stir. Harry, 20 years old at the time, issued an apology soon after, saying he was sorry for his mistake. It was a poor choice of costume. Yeah, it was. But why? Why was it a poor choice? What do you think? Well, Harry is part of the British royal family, right? His great-grandfather, King George VI, went to war with Hitler to fight the Nazis. You see, Harry had forgotten the significance of who he was. As a member of the British royal family, there are some things you just don't do. You don't even pretend to be a Nazi. See, Harry had forgotten the significance of what it meant to be part of his family, to be part of the British royal family. Now, tonight we're going to be talking about sex and sexuality. The title of this sermon is Let's Talk About Sex. So what does any of this have to do with sexuality? Well, we're going to see that sometimes, you and I, we can be like poor old Harry. We can forget who we are. And that's really serious because who we are determines how we live. Let me say that again. Who we are determines how we live. What we think about ourselves, that is our identity, affects how we live, our behavior, the choices we make, even when it comes to our sexuality. So we're going to navigate the potentially turbulent waters of sexuality as we journey through 1 Corinthians chapter 6 by looking at three questions. How does our culture view sexuality? How should we view sexuality? And why should we live differently? Okay, let's get going with our first point. How does our culture view sexuality? Now, before we look at this question, we're going to need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of morality in general. Now, how does our culture, that is, a culture that largely denies the existence of God, doesn't it? Or at least the relevance of his existence. How does a culture like that determine what is right and wrong? Well, it's very hard to do. In fact, it's pretty much impossible. Why? Well, as Christians, we believe that God created the world and us and his laws are just and right. Now, we believe murder is wrong because the author of life says it's wrong. We believe we should love our neighbor. Why? Because God is love. So we believe there's a higher law that gives credit to the laws of our land. But if there is no God, you know, if we kind of cut our ties to him, how do we arrive at what is right and wrong? You know, what's it based on? Now, this, this story is an oldie but a goodie. 
Uh, on his way to work every day, a man passed a clockmaker's shop. Now, he would, without fail, stop outside and synchronize his watch with the clock that stood in the window of the shop every morning. Now, the owner of the store noticed his daily routine and, you know, one day struck up a conversation with this guy and asked him, you know, what he did for work. The man timidly confessed he worked as a timekeeper at the nearby factory and his watch wasn't very good and needed to be readjusted every day. So since it was his job to ring the closing bell at the factory at four o'clock, he you know, synchronised his watch with the clock every morning in the clockmaker's shop without fail. So he got the right time. Now, the clockmaker, even more embarrassed, said, oh, well, I hate to tell you this, but my clock doesn't work very well either and I've been adjusting it to the bell that I hear from the factory every day at four o'clock. You see, how do either of these men know the correct time when all they have is two badly working clocks? What's their reference point for the correct time? And how does our culture gain an understanding of what's right and wrong when they don't know where to turn? Who says who or what is right or wrong? If God is not the highest authority in their lives, then what is? Uh, Bertrand Russell, a philosopher, uh, lived last century. He's a well-known atheist, smart guy, and a kind of a guru, a pin-up boy for the new atheist movement, if you've heard of that. He was debating a Christian guy in 1948 when he revealed his philosophical weakness on morality. The Christian asked him, his name was Copplestone, the Christian, asked him uh, what he what basis he differentiated between right and wrong. And Russell, the atheist, answered he did so on the same basis he told the difference between yellow and blue. The Christian challenged the analogy and said, well, you know, that colours are differentiated on the basis of seeing. How does one determine the difference between right and wrong? And Russell replied that he did so on the basis of his feelings. So is that how we're to live? You know, everyone just figure out for themselves what's right and wrong. Whatever feels right to you, well, that's right or wrong. Do you, do you think we'd be able to come to a consensus of feeling? Okay, how else might someone who rejects God determine what is right and wrong? You know, what about evolution? What about the evolutionist worldview? Does naturalistic evolution give us a basis for right and wrong? Is that the master clock that humanity can set its time to? Well, evolution says that everything is random. That everything we see, love and experience has arrived here totally by chance. And therefore, completely devoid of meaning. The evolutionist worldview tells us that the strong eat the weak. Isn't that right? Strong organisms overtake weak ones. Strong animals eat weak animals. It's therefore the same for humanity, right? I mean, humans just being the most highly evolved species on the planet, the evolutionists would tell you. So therefore, strong people dominate weak people. Strong nations subdue weak nations. I mean, isn't that how we arrive at concentration camps? Strong people exterminating weaker ones. Now, it's disgusting, isn't it? I mean, it's it's outrageous. It's utterly wrong. But why is it wrong? If you're outraged by that and similar atrocities around the world, why do you feel sick about it? 
The evolutionary worldview will not give you cause to feel outraged. That's just the philosophy of evolution played out to its logical conclusion. Now, of course, I'm not saying anyone who ascribes to the evolutionist worldview is evil and immoral. Of course not. There's plenty of good moral people that are not Christians. But what I do want to challenge tonight is on what grounds people base their morality. What do we defer to when it comes to making moral decisions? Who says what goes? Is it whatever you feel like? Is it anything goes? You see, the Corinthians, they struggle with these concepts too. What's the place of morality in the Christian life? See, this is what Paul is is getting at in this passage. So we're going to pick it up in verse 12. We're going to come to the earlier verses later, but we're going to start looking at our passage at verse 12. So you've got the Bible there, look it up, but I'm going to have it on the screen as well. Here we go. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So Paul here, he's probably uh, quoting a Corinthian saying, I have the right to do anything. Very libertarian they were. You see, two things are, are going on for the Corinthians here. One, they're being heavily influenced by the culture around them that said morally anything goes and we can relate, right? And two, they've they got a warped understanding of grace. They think, well, we're not under the law, we're saved by grace, so anything goes, right? But how does Paul respond? I mean, they say, I have the right to do anything. But he says, ah, but not everything is good for you. They say, oh, I have the right to do anything. He says, ah, but I won't be mastered by anything. Again, they say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Now, what's that last bit mean? Well, this is outlining a, a very ancient Greek worldview uh, when it comes to what we do with our bodies. See, many Greeks thought that the spiritual was sacred, but the, the physical was tainted. So it didn't really matter what you did with your bodies. Now the Corinthians, they're taking this on board and they're saying, look, God is going to destroy the body anyway. He's going to raise us spiritually. So it doesn't really matter what we do with our body. Anything goes, right? See, this is just like parts of our culture today, isn't it? I mean, what you do with your body doesn't really matter. It's just sex. As long as you're not hurting anybody, then it's okay, Right? I mean, how many TV shows or movies have you seen where um, uh, the man or woman is justifying having a sexual affair to the partner and uh, he or she says, it didn't mean anything. It was just sex. It was just a physical thing. Okay, so how does our culture view sexuality? Well, the reality is we live in a culture which largely thinks anything goes when it comes to sexual morality and It seems you're considered kind of abnormal if you think otherwise. Well, what do we think? Okay, that gets us to our second point. How should we view sexuality? Let's keep going to the passage, verse 13. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Okay, how should we view sexuality? It's powerful stuff. It's wonderful 
important and potent. You see, Christians, we have a very high view of sex. Now, Tim Keller, an American pastor, is really helpful in articulating this. See, we don't think that sex is kind of meaningless and anything goes. You know, the Greeks thought, well, if, if you're hungry, then have something to eat. If you're feeling sexy, then have sex. Kind of, our culture is a bit similar, right? You know, if it feels good, just do it. But Christians, we also don't think that sex is dirty, you know, and we shouldn't talk about it. Maybe like some religious people. You know, we aren't prudes. They think sex is only to be had for making babies, and if you have to have it, then keep it to a minimum, and it's kind of gross and yuck. We don't want to talk about it, so there. Okay? So we're not here and we're not there. We think sex is wonderful. A gift from God. I mean, he created it, right? It wasn't an accident. He created it. It's to be thoroughly enjoyed within the right context. Sex equals marriage. Sexual intimacy is a special and powerful thing to bring closeness between a husband and wife within marriage. See, that's what Paul's getting at when he mentions some of the Corinthians are sleeping with prostitutes. He's saying your attitude towards sex is anything goes, but you're wrong. It's powerful stuff. What you do with your body, it matters. Sex wasn't designed for casual relationships. It was designed by God to be between a husband and wife. So even if you sleep with a prostitute, there's a union that goes on there that's beyond the physical. Sex is much more than physical. I, uh, I love living by the ocean. I'm sure you guys too. That's why we kind of pay absor- exorbitant rents to live down here. Um, I love it. You know, I, I take every chance I get to enjoy, enjoy the incredible views we have here. There's Manly and, and all the glory. The sea really is beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. But when the sea steps outside its boundaries, it's no longer beautiful. It's scary. And we've seen some of that this week, haven't we, with the lagoon flooding? It can cause disaster and devastation. You see, that's really a lot like sex. Within its right boundaries, sex can be wonderful. But outside of the boundaries God created for it, sex can cause a lot of damage. See, God made us, and he knows what's best for us. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you trust God with your whole life? Do you trust your whole life to him, including your sexuality? If not, I want to ask why not? Who are you listening to for your sexual worldview? You know, what clock are you setting your time to? Who are you listening to? Is it Kyle and Jackie O? You know, is it your friends at work or at uni? Your family? TV shows? Movie stars? Blogs? Celebrities? Who do you listen to? Are you listening to them? Or are you listening to the one who made you? Let's move on to our last point. Why should we live differently? Well, let's keep reading and go back to the beginning of the passage. We're going to look at verse 9. Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what's Paul getting at here? Why is he talking about wrongdoers and and making a list of of sins? 
Is he really saying that anyone who's done any of these things before will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not go to heaven? No. He's talking about people whose lives are completely characterized by these sins. That's who they are. That's their identity. And it's got nothing to do with God. He continues, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul's saying, yeah, some of you were like this. Your lives were filled with promiscuity and worldly behavior, but that's not who you are anymore. Why? Because you've been changed. You are no longer your old self. And becoming a Christian, it's no small thing. Jesus says you must be born again. You're a new person. Yeah, Paul says you were washed. What's that mean? It's a beautiful analogy. You've been made clean. See, all the sin and all the crap that was part of your old life has been washed by the blood of Christ. You're no longer stained by sin. You are sanctified. God's Spirit now dwells in you as a Christian, helping you to live for Him. You're not alone in your Christian walk. You've been justified, meaning that all the stuff-ups you and I have done, they no longer count against us. You know, we've wronged God. We've turned our back on him. We've done what we wanted to do. But Jesus has taken our place of condemnation. He stands condemned while we are declared innocent. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that amazing? You see, this is the whole idea of identity. Paul is saying, this is who you are. You've been washed, sanctified, and justified. You're a child of God. So, live like one. Become who you already are. See, the Christian life is never, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. It's I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Yeah? See, resting in the truth that you're a child of God, completely accepted and profoundly loved, it leads us to live differently. Because who we are determines how we live Is it still hard? Yeah, of course. If you're anything like me, you need constant reminding and encouragement to live out of this identity. I mean, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. He knows we're going to struggle. Are we still going to have a tough time with these issues? Yeah, we are. Are we going to fall down sometimes? You bet. And each of us needs to know that Jesus' offer of forgiveness, when we sin, it is real. When you sin, Don't do something else stupid and turn away from God. Turn to him and seek him for forgiveness. Also, we we need to know that if if you've made mistakes, if you've done things you regret and you're walking around carrying guilt, you need to know that Christ's offer to wash you clean is very real. Take him up on it. Don't carry around that guilt and shame anymore. But... We must flee from these things. Hey, we've got to be proactive. We've got to run away from them. Do everything you can to steer clear from anything that will take you away from living out of that identity as a child of God. So let me just get real practical. Let me get real. If you're looking at porn, stop. Cut it out of your life. 
You may think you're not hurting anyone, but you're contributing to a really evil industry and you're hurting yourself in a number of ways that you may not even know. If anyone here is struggling with this issue, I just want to encourage you to stop. And if you feel like you can't and you need help, then we're here for you. I know this is not just a guy issue, girls as well. So if you're a guy and you're struggling with this, come and see me. If you're a girl, come and see Kelsey. You won't receive condemnation. We know what it's like. We know what you're going through. You'll receive understanding and support to help you cut it out of your life. See, I think it's the secrecy of this sin, the aloneness that you feel of this sin that is really crippling. One of the keys to getting out of it is telling someone, shedding light on the darkness that's in your soul. I can't encourage you enough to do something about it. Cut it out of your life. Uh, Let me say, if you're dating someone and you're asking, how far can we go? Well, I know it can be difficult. I mean, I, uh, I dated my wife for five and a half years before we got married, and man, we struggled. I was asking my youth pastor, you know, my, my minister at the time, how far can we go, you know? And he would say what I'm about to say. So if it sounds lame, I'm sorry, but um, now it is true. If you're asking how far can we go, you're asking the wrong question. You just are. Instead of asking, you know, that, how far can we go? How can I feel good? You know, how can I get my rocks off? It's really what you're thinking, right? Instead, think about, well, how can I help the person I'm dating? How can I love them and serve them at this time, even though it's hard? How can I help them live out of their identity? You know, how can I help them act as a child of God, valuing sex as a special thing to be saved for marriage? I also want to say, if you're currently sleeping with someone who's not your husband and wife, or wife rather, and uh, you consider yourself a Christian, a child of God, I want to challenge you to stop. Ask yourself, am I allowing God into every area of my life, including my sexuality? Now you might think, well, hey, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm the boss of my body. I say what I do with my body. Okay. But if you're a Christian, then you've said, Jesus, you're actually the Lord of my life. Let me ask you, is God the highest authority in your life? I mean, this isn't easy. We're going to get ridiculed for, for um, having these stands, these, these beliefs, aren't we? We're going to be called some mean things. We might be called old-fashioned and losers or far worse. You know, when I got engaged to my wife after dating that long, um, at 22, I was working at an insurance company at the time, and uh, there weren't many Christians there. It wasn't a very Christian environment. It was tough. And uh, when I announced that we were engaged, people were kind of happy for us, but then some well-meaning folk uh, took me aside and, and thought they'd talk some sense into this crazy, you know, sort of sheltered Christian little guy. Um, they said, look, why chain yourself? Why shackle yourself when you're so young? Just live together. See if you're compatible. And I said, no, no, look, you know, we're Christians and we don't want to do that. And then we talked about it a bit more. And um, I think then they realized that we hadn't slept together yet. As I said, even though we very much struggled, um, they cottoned on to that. Um, But even before that, some of the guys went, oh, did you get her pregnant? Is that it? Is that why you want to marry her? You you feel like you got to? And I said, no, no. And then it became clear that we hadn't slept together. And they just thought we were from a different planet. We're called to live differently, even when it's hard. What we do with our bodies matter. Paul continues in verses 19 and 20, and we're we're almost done here. 
Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? And here's the punchline. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. See, I think some of us can be a lot like Prince Harry, you know, forgetting that who we are determines how we live. I think we we can also forget that we were bought with a price. For us to be called children of God, it came at a great cost. Imagine a friend of yours is um, standing at the front door of your house one day when you get home. Uh, you, know, you, you invite him in and, and you get chatting and he says, oh, uh, while you were out, while I was waiting for you, a courier came with a bill that, that had to be paid and I, I just went ahead and paid it for you. Now your reaction to what he said is going to be based on how much that bill was for, right? Say if it was your in- internet provider demanding payment and it was 40 bucks, right? That was the amount, $40. You'd say, oh, thanks, man. Appreciate that. Thank you. But what if it was a whole lot more? For you homeowners out there, what if it was the total sum of your mortgage? Or what if you'd been dodging the tax office for like 15 years, right? And, and, uh, and it, the, the, the bill added up to 250 grand and your friend said, I paid for it. What would your response be then? Oh, thanks very much. No. Your mouth would be open, right? You'd be floored. You'd be thankful. You'd be filled with gratitude, wouldn't you? You see, I think we sometimes become blasé about living lives that would please God, particularly when it comes to our sexuality, because we forget what it cost for God to adopt us into his family. See, do you believe that your sin amounted to a small bill, just added up to something small that... If you really tried, you could have paid off. Or do you believe that your sin amounted to a massive debt, one that you could no way ever pay off? Jesus was willing to pay it, but it wasn't a small thing for him to do. He gave his life so that you and I could be washed, sanctified, and justified. It's not supposed to make us feel guilty. It's supposed to fill us with gratitude just like if your friend had paid that $250,000 debt. So you were bought at a price, at an enormous cost. Be filled with gratitude and live for him. Let me just say, when you're in the moment, when you're facing temptation head on, think about who you really are. Reflect on your identity. Who we are, it really determines what we do and how we live. You are so precious to God as his child. Live out of that place. Live out of your true identity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. Father, we, we admit we're forgetful. We admit we forget the significance of what it means to be called a child of the living God it is no small thing help us to live like we're part of the family it's not easy in this day and age it feels like anything goes we're going to be ridiculed for what we think especially in this area of sex and sexual morality Father God we want to admit that we need your help 
to live for you. We cannot do it on our own. Thank you for the indwelling presence of your spirit. Thank you for the people gathered in this room. And we can help each other live for you. Help us to be gracious with each other when we, we fall, when we struggle. God, we love you. We just want to thank you for being the highest authority in our lives and not having to have the pressure of, of saying what goes. You've said, help us to honor that. Amen. Amen. Um, Nikki, Dave, and Mia and the band are now going to sing a song for us. Just stay seated. Um, a song that's going to help us reflect on our true identity, what it means to be a child of God. Thanks, guys.